to build, what to build. Oh, come on, Lucy. Wow, you're a builder. You're a maker. You're a... <gasps> I got it! Tool call. Hammer. Hammer. Wrench. Wrench. Drill. Drill. Great job, Kapow. Great job, Kapow. Oh, no, wait, that's me. Great job, Lucy Wow. Oh, brother. Now all we have to do is turn this thing on. Let the show begin. Hello, one and all. It's me, Kapow, the mechanical pygmy goat, coming to you live from Lucy Wow's barn in Pflugerville. Now, you probably look at me as a successful podcaster, builder, sidekick, tin can taster, and inventor, and think, dude, is there anything Kapow can't do? But the truth is, when I first started out, I often wondered if there was anything I could do. I mean, I wanted to be a podcaster and an inventor, but when I looked around, I didn't see any goats like me doing those things. I was different, I looked different, I ate different, played music out of my butt, my goatness, I even saw the world differently. And that all just made me feel like I didn't belong. I think a lot of us feel like that sometimes. Thankfully, because of Lucy Wow and all of you who listen to our podcast, I've learned that even though I'm different, I'm not alone because everyone is different. And those things that make you different, well, sometimes they turn out to be the very things that make you successful. Which brings us to today's inventor. Temple Grandin. Temple is living proof that what makes you different is often what makes you great. Temple was born in 1947 in Boston and she was different. She didn't talk. She screamed, she hummed, and she threw tantrums. But she never said a word. She was also scared of hugs and flinched whenever someone touched her. Because of all this, her childhood was hard. Not just for her, but for her family too. In 1950, she was diagnosed with autism. Autism, or Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, refers to a group of conditions that include challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, and communication. Autism is pretty common. It affects one in 54 children in the United States. Nowadays, we know a lot about it, and there are many experts and resources available to families. But back in the 1950s, when Temple was diagnosed, autism was a bit of a mystery, and there weren't many places for Temple and her family to go for advice. Since no one was able to help Temple communicate, her mother took matters into her own hands, and it worked! Through dedication, love, and patience, she was able to teach Temple to dress herself, take turns, shake hands, and most importantly, talk. And it turned out, Temple had a lot to say. But there was one thing that no matter how much Temple tried, she just couldn't stand, hugging. What Temple did like was deep pressure, like being wrapped in blankets and pillows. She found that it really calmed her down. So when Temple was 18 and she went to her aunt's cattle ranch and saw a mechanical chute that closed around the cow's bodies, pressing their sides to calm them, Temple wanted one for herself. Unfortunately, these squeeze machines were strictly made for cows. Temple decided that if she couldn't get one, she would make one. And just like that, Temple started down the path of invention. When it came to inventing, Temple was a natural. 
it turned out that her autism made her super good at focusing on specific, technical subjects and perfecting them through repetition. It was like her autism was a superpower when it came to building an invention. And with this new superpower, in a few years' time, Temple was able to perfect her own squeeze machine. Oh. Her machine was equipped with a padded neck opening, a comfortable headrest, and completely lined with foam rubber. It allowed her to manually control the pressure while she was inside it. She called it the Hug Machine. And it changed Temple's life. From that point on, whenever Temple found that she was becoming overstimulated, she would hop in her hug machine and it would calm her right down. But Temple dreamed that her machine would do even more. She hoped that if she used the hug machine enough, one day she would be able to hug people she loved. After all, practice makes perfect. Watching her cattle on her aunt's farm had helped Temple find her talent as an inventor. So it was only fair that she would use this talent to help improve the lives of farm animals. And my goodness, did she ever! Temple became an expert on the subject of humane livestock handling and reducing animal stress at meatpacking plants. Her designs are now used in almost half of all cattle processing plants in the United States. She is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the welfare of cows and pigs. And she's won awards from industry leaders and animal welfare advocates. Wow! But while Temple may have been famous in the animal world, she wasn't famous in the human world until 1993, when a man named Oliver Sacks wrote an article about her. In this article, Temple explained how autism impacted her life in a very open, honest, and funny way. At the time, Few individuals with autism had ever described their lives in their own words like this, and so Temple's story blew everyone's mind. Soon, because of the bravery shown in this article, Temple became one of the best-known people with autism in the world. I mean, her 2010 TED Talk has been viewed almost five million times. By bravely speaking about the things that made her different, Temple was able to help other people realize they weren't alone. Temple became a role model and inspiration not just for individuals with autism, but for anyone who ever felt different. The girl who couldn't speak had become a powerful voice as an inventor, an autism advocate, a champion of animal science and welfare, and a human being. And it all started with a hug machine. Actually, let's check back on that real quick. Temple had continued to use her hug machine on a regular basis during her career, but in 2008, it broke. And you know what happened then? She didn't fix it. It turned out she didn't need a machine to hug her anymore. She'd reached her earlier goal and was, to quote her, into hugging people now. It all goes to show, sometimes what you think is your biggest weakness turns out to be the superpower that helps you reach your biggest goals. So get out there and get inventing. Oh, and if you have any thoughts or questions about Temple, me, Invention, Building, Pflugerville, or Tin Cans, send it to Kapow at GoKidGo.com. You might get your question read live on the show. Every Friday is Listener Mailbag. Oh, hi there. Welcome back to Pflugerville. It's me, Kapow, the mechanical pygmy goat, beaming into your ears all the way from Lucy Wow's barn. I'm so excited for today's episode because it's a bit different than usual. You see, today we're taking a food tour through the ages. That's right, we're going to journey 6,000 years into the past to when one of the most delicious foods the world has ever known was invented. 
Then, we're going to follow this food's evolution through the centuries as humankind innovates it, tinkers with it, and perfects it. So that today we can all sit down and enjoy the deliciousness that is... A flip-flop. Mmm, flip-flops. Whether between two slices of bread in a flip-flop sandwich or sitting on a bed of lettuce in a flip-flop salad, nothing makes the mouth water quite like the F to the L to the I to the P. Now, what's surprising is that this delicious food wasn't invented to tantalize the tongue. In fact, it was invented to tantalize the toes. That's right, flip-flops were invented to be shoes. Isn't that wild? But you know what? Before we get into any of that and dive into this food tour of the shoe aisle, let's quickly review what a flip-flop is. A flip-flop is a shoe that has a strap, usually Y-shaped, that keeps your toes connected to a simple sole, often a foamy rubber material. Unlike other shoes, the flip-flop does not cover the whole foot. In most cases, flip-flops flip and flop against your heel or the back part of your foot. Hence the name flip-flop. But they have quite a few other names as well. Sandals is one. Down under in Australia, you might hear them referenced to as thongs. Some folks even call them slippers. But no matter what you call them, it means the same thing to me, lunch. Mm okay, now that we all know what the flip-flop is, let's take a look at how it was invented. Almost every culture on the planet has created a form of flip-flop at some point. But the earliest record of use of flip-flops is from 6,000 years ago in 4,000 BC in ancient Egypt. Many of the drawings from this era show people wearing flip-flops. We know from research that these flip-flops were made from papyrus, which is a plant that grows along the Nile River and is the same plant that the ancient Egyptians used to make paper. These papyrus flip-flops had a strap that went over the top of the foot. Now, nothing from this era says anything about anyone eating these flip-flops. But come on, you know a camel took a nibble every now and then. While the papyrus sandals were popular in Egypt, where the Nile River is, Africa's desert tribes didn't have a big water source or lots of plants, so they had to look for another way to make their flip-flops. They used the skin of animals they hunted to make thicker and tougher flip-flops, which provided cushioning from the burning sands and sharp rocks of their homeland. A little later, across the Atlantic Ocean, over in South America, people started weaving a version of the flip-flops. These flip-flops were made out of woven plants, but not papyrus, and had a V-shaped strap, which was worn between the first and second toe. Now, although these flip-flops were a continent apart and had different designs, they did the same job. They allowed the wearer to run and walk comfortably and safely over the sharp and pointy ground. And let me tell you, we're not talking about a quick lap around a pyramid. These ancient flip-flops went the distance. In fact, some South American tribes are famous for racing over 200 miles in their sandals for fun. Wow! Talk about playing with your food. Oh, and don't forget Europe. Like their African brothers and South American sisters, the ancient Greeks and Romans wore flip-flops too. They preferred to make theirs out of tough leather, which would hold up during battle and athletics. 
That's right, war sandals. And while the Greeks wore the thong of their flip-flops in between the first and second toe, Romans wore theirs between the second and third toe. And both of them attached leather laces that went up the leg, creating more stability and support. My goodness, am I the only one getting hungry here? But as cool as all these versions of the flip-flops were, the only style that would take over the modern world was the one they rocked in ancient Japan. In Japan, it's traditional to take off your shoes before entering a home. So a comfy shoe you can slip on and off is very important. The style that rose to the top in Japan is called Zori and looks just like the flip-flop you see around today. You probably even have a pair yourself. During World War II, Soldiers who fought in the Pacific were able to pick up pairs of these Japanese Zori and bring them back home. These Zori flip-flops became especially popular in Brazil, where they soon began producing flip-flops made of rubber. These rubber Zori flip-flops quickly became a favorite of surfers in California. And since California surfers are the kings and queens of laid back and cool, the flip-flop became a stylish statement of that chill beach vibe. And just like a surfer on a wave, the flip-flop rode this vibe to every corner of the world, even to a place called Pflugerville, where a handsome goat with an eye for invention realized that a flip-flop had another purpose altogether. Lunch! And the rest, as they say, is history. Delicious, delicious history. Oh, hi there! Welcome back to Pflugerville! It's me, Kapow, the mechanical pygmy goat, beaming into your ears all the way from Lucy Wow's barn. I'm so happy you've joined me for today's very special podcast. Why is it so special? Well, because for the first time ever, I have a co-host, Pflugerville's own Guy Neville. Thank you for that kind and generous welcome, Kapow. I'm excited to be here co-hosting with you, especially because today we're talking about one of my favorite super inventions. You know, Guy, I never really thought of today's invention as being super, but you're right. It is pretty super when you think about it. <coughs> you better believe it, Kapow. It's not just super, it's super cool. Which means that it won't just make you a superhero, it will make you the coolest superhero in the room. I guess you're right, guy. I mean, nothing cools you off like a cold drink, right? Uh, cold, cold drink? Um, what, what are you talking about? Today's invention. <laughs> Boba tea. Yeah. Boba tea. Boba? Tea? Uh, uh-oh. What's wrong, guy? Uh, well, Kapow, I, I thought we were doing a show about Boba Fett's Mandalorian armor. Oh, no, 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 not Boba the Fett. Boba the drink. You know, chewy tapioca balls swimming in creamy milk tea. Boba, or bubble tea, is one of the most popular drinks in the world. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, I, I love Boba tea. It's just that uh, all the research I did was on a bounty hunter armor. So you don't know how boba tea was invented? Uh, I've never thought about it. Was it invented? Of course it was invented! I mean, you don't see cups of tea with tapioca balls in them growing on trees, do you? Huh, oh, you're right, Kapow. Okay, I'm super interested now. Tell me, 
When was Boba invented? A long time ago? Huh? Huh? In a galaxy far, far away? <laughs> nope! It was invented in the late 1980s, right here in this galaxy, in a place called Taiwan. It all started with three popular East Asian treats, milk tea, shaved ice, and tapioca balls. All three were popular on their own for a long time, but in the 1980s, all three were combined into one beverage, tapioca balls on the bottom, followed by a layer of shaved ice and milk tea to fill out the rest of the drink. Uh, <laughs> yum, that is the way. It's a drink tea, that is. But, uh, Kapow, why Boba and not call it uh, shaved tapioca milk tea? Oh, that is a great cue, guy. For starters, shaved tapioca milk sounds weird. Second, the tea became known as boba because of the shape of the tapioca balls, which is the part of the drink that everyone went so crazy for. They loved how it looked like a cup of beautiful pearls or shimmering bubbles. Though a lot of people do call it bubble tea because of the way the drink bubbles when it's all mixed together. But whatever you call it, it's tasty. <laughs> yeah, it is. I like strawberry boba myself. What's your favorite, Cabal? Tin can flavored boba, of course. <laughs> In fact, I have one right here. <laughs> Want a sip? Uh, no thanks. I, um, I had a big lunch. Me too! <laughs> guess what I had? Tin cans. How'd you guess? It's always tin cans with you, Kapow. Tell me more about the uh, boba. Sure thing, guy! Well, today we have tin can and strawberry flavor boba. There weren't that many flavors at first, but boba started to change and evolve after it became part of the food stall culture of Taiwan's night markets. You see, in Taiwan, they have special outdoor markets at night where hundreds of food stalls light up and serve all sorts of delicious snacks. They're popular places to go hang out after school or work. Because these night markets are open air and everyone is walking around, any treat that looks cool gets a lot of notice. So for a cool looking treat like boba, it was the perfect setting. Soon after its arrival, boba was the most popular night market drink around. Food stall owners were quickly competing to make the newest, tastiest, most innovating boba. This led to the use of fruit, powders, and syrups, and toppings like grass jelly, almond jelly, egg pudding, and red beans. Even the milk was swapped out for sweetened, non-dairy creamer. And as a result, the drink became known for its incredibly sweet, creamy taste. Yum! Uh, so, uh, tell me, how do they make it exactly? Is it like, uh, forged in fire like Boba Fett's Mandalorian armor? Sorry, guy, making boba is pretty easy, actually. The most important part is preparing the tapioca balls. They have to be boiled for 30 minutes and then cooled down for 30 minutes to achieve the right texture. Your tapioca balls can't be too squishy or all of them will stick together at the bottom of the cup. But if they're too hard, they'll be impossible to chew. Boba lives by the texture of the tapioca balls just like the Mandalorian lives by the way. I guess. Now, every cup of boba starts with a scoop of tapioca balls, followed by the tea or juice, and then a whole lot of ice. So, uh, wait, how did it go from night markets of Taiwan 
to all over the world. Well, the Taiwanese people immigrated to other countries. They brought boba with them. And everywhere they went, people loved it. And why not? It's fun, it's cool, and best of all, it's delicious. That's the thing that's so great about people traveling and immigrating. Cultures mix and grow and improve, just like an invention. Wow, Kapow. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. When I realized we weren't doing Boba Fett's armor, I was worried. But Boba turned out to be a pretty super invention after all. I'm glad you enjoyed it, guy. And I tell you what, how about next week we do Boba the Fett's mandolin armor? Ugh, it's a Boba Fett. No, duh. And, uh, Manda, uh, you know what, uh, uh, I'll explain it all next week. Great! And hey, if any of you kids can't wait to learn more about inventions, check out more of Kapow's Power of Invention podcast. Or swing over to the Lucy Lowe podcast where I, Guy Neville, play the big and heroic roles of guy o -Matic. And Guy Neville. And if you've got a question about Boba, the world of Go Kid Go shows, Pflugerville, Guy Neville, or Lil Ol' Me. Send it to Kapow at GoKidGo.com. You might get your question read live on the show. Now, go make something, build something, go big, and then go bigger. Until next time, this is Kapow signing off. Go, kid, go! Go, kid, go!